Well, we are back in the book of Titus. We started that last fall. We're going to continue studying it into this semester. We'll see how long it takes us. I mentioned that I don't really want to go too fast uh, just because there's so much helpful information in this book. Just a quick recap of the book. The book was written by Paul, probably the year 63. He was released from prison in Rome and he began traveling in modern day Turkey He started more churches. If you want to read about those churches, they are mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. There are six churches that he started in that time period. And so he sends a letter to Titus who he left on the island of Crete in order to establish leadership in the churches on the island of Crete. So that's the purpose of this little letter. It's a personal letter written to one of his disciples, a man he trusted, We talked about his biography at the beginning of our study back in September, and Paul invested quite a bit of time and effort into Titus. And so this book reflects what he expected of him as he pastored not just one church, but multiple churches, trying to set up a system where there were elders leading the churches on that island. And so we get to chapter two, which we began last week. We said that this whole chapter, or really the first 10 verses, are about the reputation that we leave behind as Christians in this world. The way people will view those three categories, God's word, God's people, the church, and who God is, God's character, God's name, the person of God. Depending on how you live your life, the reputation of God's word, God's people, and God's character is at stake. That's the, the paradigm, you could say, of this introduction of this chapter, chapter 2. And the way Paul goes into it is he wants to focus on specific groups in the church, on Crete. And so we talked that there are groups, men, older men, younger men, older women, younger women. And then in verse 9, he'll go into slaves. We'll talk about that when we get to those verses. So Paul's approach is to make sure that every constituent group in the church understands its role and understands how they specifically in their age group and in their gender can impact and influence the reputation of God's word, God's people and God. And so that that makes it extremely relevant to us. You are either older or young. There's nothing in between. Therefore, this passage applies to you. You're either a man or a woman. Therefore, this passage applies to you. And Paul begins in verse 2 with older men. And so thinking about older men, there are multiple ways to think about a man, a man's man, a real man, right? Right. (laughs) Thank you. You could consider some of these images and you probably have an identification with what these men have done. Okay, just shout out your favorite. I don't care who says it. Norris, okay? Okay, let's do it. Norris fans, raise your hand. Uh, Ten? Does everybody know Chuck Norris? Yeah! Who doesn't know Chuck Norris? (laughs) Alex, you lie. What? Okay, you got to go watch a movie called... I don't remember. Um, What? Yeah, that's right. Something Texas. Walker, Texas Ranger. There we go. There's like... 
Where's He's always in the... In, oh, yeah, that's right. Missed Rambo. Bummer. Brad Pitt. Who likes Brad Pitt here? Alice likes Brad Pitt. Okay. Homewrecker. Homewrecker. Um, are you, you going to contribute a new name or you like Brad Pitt? What's happening? Oh, you like James Bond. Okay, so he likes Daniel Craig. All right, Daniel Craig fans. All right. Eh, less than Chuck Norris. Who's up there? John Cena, I think, right? Top right. Cena. John Cena. Who likes him? <laughs> Sam in the back. Way up there. <laughs> okay, a few of you. Uh, Clooney? What? Sosie? Alone? Stand proud. Stand proud. <laughs> Uh, De Niro, come on. Godfather, yep. There we go, a few of you. I like it, I like it. Uh, Okay, Eastwood, he's a classic. Yes, there we go. Eastwood, yep, he's a classic. Did we get, oh no, The Rock. Anybody like The Rock? Fast and Furious? Okay. Yeah, I'm sure you have good reasons or dumb reasons why you like those individuals. Um, but I did select those pictures, except two were added earlier, just a few minutes ago by somebody else. But uh, these are the men that people would probably identify in our society as manly, and they're men. Um, I'm going to give you a couple of Chuck Norris quotes for those of you who are. I just I, I spent some time. You can tell, you see how productive I am in the afternoons. 101 jokes about Chuck Norris. I'm not going to read all 101. Once a cobra bit Chuck Norris's leg, and after five days of excruciating pain, the cobra died. <laughs> it's a good one. When Chuck Norris was born, only, the only person who cried was the doctor. <laughs> Never slap Chuck Norris. <laughs> How about this one? Chuck Norris is the reason why Waldo is hiding. <laughs> Uh, this is my favorite. Chuck Norris used to beat up his shadow because it was falling too close. It now stands 15 feet behind him. <laughs> I like it. Chuck Norris, a man's man. There's actually an article I read that actually was titled Chuck Norris, the man of man, the manliest man. Um, you can go that direction. You can go into the direction of manners, good manners. Have you guys heard the phrase manners maketh men? Okay, it comes from William Horman, who was the headmaster in the 15th century at a school called Eton, Eton Private College. It's supposed to be one of those elite schools in England. It's in Windsor, almost like around, around the corner from Windsor Castle. And so this man in the 1400s and into the 1500s taught those boys manners. And he said, this is what it means to be a man. You have to know how to treat people in a certain way. You have to know how to treat women in a certain way. Speaking about treating women in a certain way, there are some rules that people have developed that are helpful for us to refresh as men and women. So here are some rules that men have for women. And this is going to be you know, the manners that we have. When we're driving, just keep this in mind whenever you drive with a guy. Christopher Columbus did not need directions. <laughs> Neither do I. My favorite story on this comes from John MacArthur. He and Patricia were spending time here in L.A. with uh, Ian, uh, Ian Murray and his wife, Jean. You guys know Ian Murray? He's an author uh, from Edinburgh. 
And so Patricia and Gina in the back seat and MacArthur and uh, Ian Murray in the front. And the whole time, Pastor John says, Jean was telling her husband how to drive. Slow down. Go up, go faster. Don't go so quick. The whole time she was driving from the back seat. See, look, the guys are grumbling. <laughs> they feel the pain of that emotion. Second rule. If you ask a question you don't want an answer to, expect an answer you don't want to hear. Number three, don't ask us what we're thinking about unless you're prepared to discuss topics like Lint, guns, the Roman Empire, that's me. Uh, I'm sorry, I've dragged you to every sermon has Roman Empire in it. Even tonight we'll have some. Um, Or football. How about this? Number four, the rule for men. Foreign films are best left to foreigners. (laughs) Unless it's about Bruce Lee. Then, you know, that's an exception. The only exception guys will make for a foreign film. Um, If we ask, what's wrong? And you say, nothing? We'll act like nothing's wrong. Here's the thing. We know you're not telling the truth, but the hassle of getting to the truth, not worth it. Number six. We are not mind readers and never will be. Our lack of mind reading ability is not proof of how little we care about you. It's true. I want to read it again. (laughs) All right. If something we said can be interpreted in two ways and one of those ways makes you sad or upset, we mean the other way. (laughs) So those are some rules that, you know, girls should keep in mind when with a guy. How about the other way? Rules for men from women. This is how women communicate. I read this online. I found this online, so I don't know if this is true, but I'm going to take it as true. No means no. Is that true, ladies? No. Forget these rules. Yes means yes. No. Yes? No? Okay. Oh, yeah. Hey. Boys should not be talking this part right now. (laughs) And silence could mean anything she feels like it in the moment. And it could change the next moment. All right. Number two. This is the second rule for boys from women. A grunt is seldom an acceptable answer to any question I ask you. Last Friday, if you were paying attention, the very end of the Bible study when doing the announcements and uh, new visitors, um, I think it was Diego and Josh, right? No, no, Diego was in here. Josh was doing announcements with Stephen. And uh, they were announcing the men's conference that happened last Saturday. And somebody, one of them said, where are the men at? And literally, <laughs> grunting was what I heard. I was sitting right in this area. This is so classic. Number four, women to men rules. Men are just wrong. That's it. Number, the next one, uh, number five. Um, Yes, I know that most of the great chefs are male. Then why aren't you cooking? (laughs) All right, shopping is therapy. The next rule, shopping is therapy, so deal with it. Here's where we find comfort, ladies. There was research done at the University of New York, City University of New York, that apparently proved that men struggle to distinguish subtle differences in shades of color, specifically yellow, green, and blue. So, 
If you take a man shopping with you, be ready for some bad advice because he can't even tell the difference between the colors you're showing him. And beyond that, they talk about shape as well, that we just struggle with shape differences. I have no idea where it's coming from, but that's what I read. Um, last one. The Journal Biology of Sex Differences says that women have better hearing, taste, smell, and vision. There was only one thing left for us boys, touching. Which is why you always hear a mom tell to her little boy, stop touching that every single time. You know that's true every time. I hear it with my nephew all the time. He's 11 and he still can't pay attention. There are rules that help us live life in our own gender. And these are comedic and these are helpful. And there is truth in manners maketh men. Paul begins with men. When he wants to set some specific expectations and specific rules of men in the church. And his rules aren't very comedic. Their expectations of every single Christian man, he starts with older men, and he'll get to the younger men, we'll do that next time, because he understands that they play a part in the church. And we talked about the church being an organism, a living body, and so we contribute to that life. And just as God went out looking for Adam in Genesis chapter 3 verse 8, even though Eve was the first to sin, Paul begins his address to men, older men, men who have been established in the church as leaders who are supposed to set the example. And from Paul's perspective, older men would probably mean 40 and over because the life expectancy in the Roman Empire, Roman Empire, Ben, there we go, was between 35 and 45. Some lived longer, that's true, but those were exceptions. And so for Paul, he says, when you are in that kind of crossing into the 40s, you're going to be considered an older man. I'm not saying that is necessarily applicable to us today, but 40 is that threshold necessarily. But what I'm saying is there are older and younger men in the church, and Paul addresses them. And we're going to talk about older women and younger women as well as we continue through this paragraph. It's going to take us multiple weeks to get through this. So just be patient as we move from verse to verse, from characteristic to characteristic. I want to read for us the first 10 verses once again to set the context for our discussion. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. 
Paul's expectation as he gets to men is linked to the idea of being healthy. We talked about that in chapter 1. In verse 9 of chapter 1, Paul talks about sound doctrine, but the word there is healthy, healthy doctrine. In verse 13, he talks about people needing to be sound in the faith or healthy is the word, same word, in the faith. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, you are to teach things that have sound doctrine as a foundation, healthy doctrine. In other words, everything is wrapped around this idea of health. And just imagine that if this is a body, if the church is a body, we want it to be a healthy body. We don't want any diseases, any defects, any deficiencies. That's why Jesus talks about, that's what the Bible talks about Jesus purifying us in Ephesians 5, for example, making it spotless, wrinkle free, completely healthy as it's the church is presented to him. And that final day when we're united with him in Revelation chapter 19. So all that we're, that we're talking about is all about being in a healthy Christian community and the contribution that older men will be making. But here's what I want to make sure you don't miss in this whole paragraph. There is a relationship that's expected in the church, a relationship of discipleship. Older men are fulfilling a function, not just walking around being temperate, dignified, sensible, sound, and so on. No, they're supposed to be teaching, verse 6, young men. Older women have a set of characteristics, but what are they trying to do? Verse 4, encouraging younger women. So in both relationships, younger men, older men to younger men, older women to younger women, there's a discipleship that's expected by Paul. That's why when we talk about discipleship in this church, our model is rooted in this chapter. That's why we talk about men discipling men, women discipling women, not Mixing those two categories. We get our understanding of discipleship from this text. Even the verb in verse 4, that they may encourage the younger women, has the idea of sensibility, which keeps repeating in this paragraph. In verse 2, in verse 5, in verse 6, and then again in verse 12. So it's connected to that verb, but it's also connected to the verb of pedagogy. To teach, to mentor, to disciple. Paul, five times in the New Testament, talks about imitate me as I imitate Christ. Let me give you one very clear verse. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. If you were here on Sunday night, you heard Andy Nacelli preach this passage. And he talked about the one thing that we do is to pursue Christ's likeness to ultimately arrive at the resurrection from the dead, which is the ver- uh, verse 11. But in verse 17, after Paul kind of says, this is the one thing that should dominate the pursuit of every single Christian. In verse 17 says this, Brothers, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So in other words, he says, imitate me and then imitate those people who have a similar lifestyle. A lifestyle that was just described in verses 12 through 16. The pursuit is Christ no matter what it costs. So discipleship is at the foundation of the Christian life. And so older men have an obligation and a responsibility to disciple. Older women have that same responsibility. We as younger individuals, depending on where we are in life, 
And younger does mean age, but it also has by implication maturity, spiritual maturity. An 80-year-old man can be a baby Christian. And so he would need to be discipled and maybe even could be discipled by a man who is half his age, but has been a Christian longer. So don't get too stuck on age when you're thinking about discipleship. The more important element is, am I being matured by somebody who's speaking into my life because they have been following Christ more faithfully longer than I have? It also expects that you are discipling somebody. In other words, there's a a relationship that's going to mature and develop and continue for the rest of your Christian journey that you need to be discipling somebody. You're being discipled. There are no exceptions. There's no end. It's not when you reach 60 or 80. There's constantly a relationship where other people are speaking into your life in order to help you become more like Christ. And the simplest way to define discipleship is a spiritual friendship. A friendship that at the very foundation is held together by spiritual interests. It doesn't mean you can't talk about football or Daniel Craig. But it does mean that what really holds your friendship together is a common affection for Christ. And that draws you to one another. That's why you want to spend time with other Christians. Because at some point, you'll move past the movies and the music and the books and the sports and everything else, and you'll get to what actually revives your soul. And you remember that you are an eternal being. And somebody else has the privilege and the responsibility to shape you, you as an eternal being, into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's the responsibility of a discipler. And I know that many of you are doing that faithfully. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for speaking into the lives of the people around you. Maybe some of them are sitting at your table. And the people that are being discipled, you need to remember what the point is of a discipler. It's not to control you. It's not to call you or text you and ask you, did you read your Bible today? It's not to force you into some Christian paradigm that that person has developed and now feels like they have to enforce it upon you. The point that they're trying to accomplish in your life and the purpose is to help you every single day to be more faithful to Christ. And it takes time to develop trust that you're willing to fully welcome that person into your life. So, discipler, don't be too offended if somebody doesn't fully welcome you into that, their life, you know, second week into the friendship. And I think there's wisdom in making sure that time moves at the right pace for you guys in that relationship. Because if done properly and biblically, that could be one of the best friendships in your life. And maybe you're thinking of people when I say that. I am. People who've shaped me, some of them since I was 12 years old growing up here, to this day continue to shape me through phone calls and conversations when we see each other. Yeah, they might live in a different state or in a different country, but because the foundation, those early years took the right time to develop those friendships and the trust, that bond won't be broken in this life, but it's only going to continue to eternity. So I want to make sure you walk away, not just with a list of things to do as a guy and as a woman, 
But that you understand that Paul's paradigm for Titus is this is how the Christian life functions. This is how the Christian body operates. This is how it lives and thrives and becomes healthier through discipleship relationships in the church. And so Paul isn't necessarily pushing perfection. He is pushing the right direction of, for your life. We've talked about the fact that you won't be like Christ in this life. That that happens when you see him face to face or when you die. So rapture or death. Until then, we need to make sure that we're constantly moving in the right direction. And so in verse 2, Paul begins with older men. And he says, the way you will be connected to sound doctrine and demonstrate that sound doctrine or healthy doctrine has impacted your life and is now flowing out from your life is that first of all, you are temperate. And that first characteristic can be summarized as balanced thinking. That's the meaning behind this word, balanced thinking. Oftentimes, this word actually is used in the New Testament and really in the Greek, around the New Testament, the Greek writings around the New Testament to refer to somebody who is not drunk, literally not drunk with wine. So, in, even in this book, in verse 7 of chapter 1, Paul talks about the elders not being addicted to wine. And in verse 12, he talks about people that are, are lazy and they're gluttons and they're not, they don't have self-control. So, Paul's use of this word sometimes is literal. Here, it's metaphoric. He wants us to understand that we need to be characterized by balanced thinking. Now, we have to recognize this, that early Christians, unfortunately, were getting drunk even in the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 21, Paul says that. That they were coming together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and they were out of control. And so they were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Just imagine that. We did the Lord's Supper once a month here. Just imagine if somebody keeps drinking and drinking, if this was real wine, it's not, and ultimately got drunk. And so Paul, in that chapter, verse, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, says that God has taken some of you to heaven. You're dead. Some of the people around you have died because they have not been exercising self-control even at the Lord's Supper. Paul's message is simple. First of all, definitely you're not drunk if you're an older man and a Christian man in the church. And remember, he's talked to the leadership already back in chapter one. This isn't for leadership anymore. This is for men, older men in the church who are not necessarily in leadership. But because this word has the idea of general self-control and balanced thinking, we have to apply it that way as well. I love Ecclesiastes 7, 16 through 18. Please look at it because it's one of those passages that is overlooked and quickly read over. But when you pause and reflect on what Solomon is trying to communicate for us and how that applies to us as God followers and Christ followers, it has to do with balanced living and balanced thinking. Ecclesiastes kind in the middle of your Bible, in chapter 7, in verse 16. Do not be excessively righteous, and do not be overly wise. Why would you ruin yourself? 
Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Solomon's message in these three verses is simple. A person who truly loves God and follows God lives a balanced life. They have no excesses. They're not excessively righteous in the sense of self-righteous. Because in verse 20, he says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good and never sins. In other words, you can pretend to be the most righteous person in the room, but verse 20 is true of you. You're not perfectly righteous. So remember that. So in other words, live in such a way that is a balanced way. And then also don't pursue wickedness. Because ultimately, wickedness oftentimes leads to foolish decisions. And that's even practically true. You get in with the wrong crowd. And stuff happens. All to say is this, you could be a casualty. Because you made a foolish decision to be with the wrong people at the wrong time in the wrong place. That's the point of verse 17. Why will you die before your time? So the Christian pursues balance in his or her life. And it all starts with balanced thinking. God gives us his word to guide us. It's the, the word that allows us to become more wise And so the first thing that Paul says is older men need to be characterized by balanced thinking, which ultimately will lead to balanced living. But there's a second term, and that is they are to be dignified. And this has to do with your reputation. They have a respectable reputation. They are dignified. Now, this term doesn't only refer to older men or leadership. It refers to all believers. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, Prayers and petitions and thanksgivings need to be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, so that we all believers may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So our responsibility is to pray for all. Does it matter what position somebody holds in our society? We need to pray for them so that the result is our reputation is one of dignity. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, it talks about children being dignified. In 1 Timothy 3.11, it talks about women who are deacons in the church are to be dignified. And in verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 3, it talks about deacons who are men need to be dignified. So in other words, we're talking about all sorts of individuals in the church, various ages need to be characterized by a reputation that is respectable. Paul says, men, your reputation in the church needs to be one of respectability. In the Roman world, for Ben, in the Roman world, Respect had to do with majesty. It was divine. It was often attributed to the gods. That's who you truly respect. That's who you truly see as dignified. They're the objects of veneration. They're lofty. Now, sometimes men like emperors and generals were put into that category, and so they were also treated with respect, and to some degree in in writings of the ancient world, they are deified as if they've become gods. It was a political propaganda. 
But there's this sense of this is who truly is majestic. So there's a meaning behind this word of elevation and a respect that comes with you because of how you live your life. You're different. Gods were different from people. So in some sense, you're different. You're more respectable in your speech, in your conduct. There's a sense of weightiness and gravitas that you bring with your age. We have three mentor couples in our Bible study. Hamilton's, the Scots, and the McCarthy's. Hamilton's, the Scots are here. I don't know if I saw McCarthy's tonight. I can fully, with, with full integrity, say, and looking at some of them in the eye right now, that they are dignified. That's their reputation. I've known most of them for many, many, many years. And they're here to help the rest of us achieve that same characteristic, to be dignified as we develop into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So please take advantage of their time and the time that they're here. They're here now. They're not with their grandkids. They all have grandkids. And I bet you, if they put down the super spiritual facade for a second, they'd say, I'd rather be with my grandkid. Right, Cammie? I see she's not even faking it. (laughs) Or Anne. Anne's looking right at me. There's a big owl over there. You can hang out with him for a second. They're here for us to help us develop into these individuals. So an older man is to be a gentleman, a statesman, one who has a godly reputation. And that happens through the third characteristic, and that is sensibility. They are sensible. That has to do with a disciplined life, self-control. So balanced life in the first one, respectable reputation that flows from a balanced or a disciplined life. Now you can see Paul applying that word to multiple individuals in this book. Verse 8 of chapter 1, the elders are to be sensible. I said this earlier, verse 5 of chapter 2, that the young women are to be sensible. In verse 6, the young men are to be sensible. In verse 12, everyone is to be sensible. So in other words, that expectation isn't just of older individuals. No, it's for everybody. But they become the models of what it means to be disciplined in life. Disciplined in every area of life. And how we think ultimately comes out in our life. That's the point of Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Proverbs 4, verse 23. This is what Solomon writes. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. That's why you protect your heart. And the idea in the Hebrew sense of the heart is all of you. The entire composition, the the makeup of all that you are, your thinking, your emotions, your passions, your volition, everything you are carefully watching and monitoring because ultimately it will dictate how you live your life. And I know many of you have memorized that verse. Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. That's how it is. We think and ultimately we become in life, what we're thinking. Jesus said, the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. So we know these fundamental truths. I want to make sure that you are guarding your heart by those truths. That you want to ultimately be referred to as an older man or an older woman who is sensible, 
who's disciplined in life. And specifically in three categories, in your passions. That's your temper. Those are your desires. Even the diet that you have. All that is implied here. Do you have self-control? Do you have discipline over your passions? From purity to what you eat to how you spend your time. The second category is projects. Your projects. If you start something, do you finish it? Do you have discipline in the things that you take on in your life, the commitments that you make, whether it's reading a book. And if you went to Sojourners on Sunday, Andy Nassar talked about reading and he said, I'm giving you an excuse to not finish every book you started. I agree with him on that, even though I feel guilty every single time I don't finish a book. But that's just wisdom and time and all that. But the idea is this. If you make a commitment to something that has value, finish it. That's an element of discipline. And then third is priorities. Are you prioritizing the right things in your life? Your passions, your projects, and your priorities. Are you spending your time wisely, in other words? Are you spending too much time on things that you shouldn't be spending time on? And it could be not sinful at all. It could be Instagram of Josh Correa shooting guns. Those are fun to watch. <laughs> but, you know, too much of that is bad. It's excessive wickedness. <laughs> so what are you spending your time on? And that's what Paul is going after. Are you disciplined? Are you sensible in how you spend your time? Our pastor said this. A man is defined by what he spends his money on, what he spends his time on, and who he spends his time with. What you spend your money on, your time on, and with whom you spend your time. And as you reflect on that, to some degree, it doesn't matter what age you are tonight, because the young man will be addressed in just a few verses, and sensibility will also be addressed to you. So as we get into discussion groups, I want to make sure that you're thinking about yourself. Does this describe me? Am I balanced in my thinking? Do I have a reputation that's respectable? And am I living a disciplined life? And I'd like us to discuss these truths because ultimately it's about application. It's not just about another message and another time to come down into the basement and spend a few hours here and then go home. No, are you thinking carefully about this passage as it affects your life? But I do want to take you to verse 12 for just a second as we wrap it up. Paul says, the grace of God has appeared, and that's the word for epiphany. The grace of God is really being referring to Christ. Christ has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, that's our word, righteously and godly in the present age. So when you think about those three characteristics, and there's five more coming next time, The foundation for us fulfilling those three is verse 12. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, and we will then live sensibly. You can't do any of this unless you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ came, that grace has entered your life, and it brought salvation to you. And if you're a Christian, that's your story, verse 12 is. That's what happened to you. 
Grace, God's grace came in and you understood the gospel and you believe that you're a sinner and you've repented from that sin. You turned away from it and you continue to repent from it and you continue to cleanse your life because you have a hope of seeing Jesus Christ face to face. And now as you live your life, your desire is to be fully submissive to me and you want to please him in all respects. And that's why you pursue righteousness, godliness, sensibility, you're denying ungodliness and worldly desires. It's almost like a summary statement, but it is the foundation of what verses 1 through 10 stand upon. You can't live out 1 through 10 apart from being a true Christian. And so my appeal to you is, are you a true Christian? Have you actually believed the gospel and repented from your sin? And you truly stand in the grace of God and you live by his grace and you love Christ because he has infused grace into your life. And if that's true, you will see a pattern of denying ungodliness, living righteously, living sensibly, living in a balanced way and thinking according to the word of God. And then your reputation will be respectable. So if you haven't repented from your sin, do that tonight. That's all you have to do. Ask God for forgiveness. You can talk to me. You can talk to some of the people around you. I think anybody here can help you guide you in prayer of repentance. For the rest of you, I do want us to discuss this passage for just a few minutes, and then we'll come back and uh, meet our guests. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the passage that was written almost 2,000 years ago, and yet has such relevance to us this evening. We see the importance of living a life that has a respectable reputation, living in a way that doesn't bring shame on your word, on your people, and on your character. We want to be people that are obedient, people that love you, not just with our mouths, not just when we sing, but with our lives. And we know that we struggle and we fail and we continue to get up and we move forward we ask that you would continue to sustain us in our faith. Hold us fast to Jesus Christ. We won't be held fast on our own. We can't hold on apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. And this evening, I do ask for all of us that that would be the desire of every single heart. And if there's anybody who hasn't repented and begun to follow Jesus, please give them new life and put them on the path of righteousness so that they too will see Jesus Christ face to face and spend eternity with him. We pray this to the honor of our Savior's name. Amen.